Let's talk about Stardust Memories. So, I think when talking about this film, there is a sort of warning I have to make at the beginning, or I'm not really sure what exactly to call it. Uh, we need to discuss the elephant in the room, which is Woody Allen. Now, recently he has been in a lot of scrutiny for a situation that happened uh, 20 or 30 years ago. I'm not going to get into the actual situation because that's not really fair to the families involved or anyone involved, really. Uh, suffice to say that a court decided that he was not guilty of the crime. But recently people are starting to wonder, well, what if he actually was or is? And I respect that in your opinion, and I'm not ar not arguing one way or another. I don't know the truth. The fact is, is I don't know if Woody Allen committed the crime that he is accused of or not. I legitimately don't know, and I don't think I can ever know. And to pretend that any of us actually know, unless we've done a lot of research into it, is sort of silly and we shouldn't just sit and be, you know, armchair philosophers and say, well, because of this or because of that. It's not really our place and it's not really fair to the victims or Woody Allen. And so I, I'm going to say, I'm just going to recognize that that's part of it. And to say that if you refuse to watch a Woody Allen movie, a Roman Polanski movie, or any filmmaker because of, say, their politics or actions that they have committed outside of the film itself, the only person being hurt is you. When you allow these people who you see as evil, which of course in the case of Roman Polanski is a fact, he committed a very evil thing, he did a very evil thing, but when you refuse to watch his work because of that, he wins. You're giving him the power, you're giving the violator, the enemy, the power. But when you take control of it, when you watch the film, and perhaps in the case of the Roman Polanski or Woody Allen, you illegally download it, not that I'm condoning any sort of illegal action, blah, 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 but, but perhaps hypothetically saying that you did, you're kind of fighting power. And if you find joy out of those films, then you're kind of winning. And I think that's kind of the whole point of art, is that it can transcend the creator. I mean, I have to think of Louis C.K.'s I Love You, Daddy, which is a film I was very excited about. And before the allegations were confirmed, although they were starting to spread at the time, if you look at the reviews on Rotten Tomatoes or any of these, you know, big conglomerate uh, medias, you know, he was hitting 90 plus percentile. People loved the film. They're like, this is a great film. This is amazing. I love it. Very Woody Allen-esque, which is all kinds of irony, I suppose. And then, of course, it comes out his own allegations, which again, I'm not going to get into because it's not fair with the victims, although it, it's quite a bit different than Roman Polanski's situation or Woody Allen's possible situation. But needless to say, when critics heard of these allegations, suddenly they hated the film. Now, the film itself hadn't changed at all. It's the exact same film it was 10 minutes ago. But because people's view of the director, the filmmaker changed, the view of the film changed, which is really tragic and it's it's frustrating, and I, I don't think that should be the case, and I've never seen this film, so maybe it's not a good film, maybe it is a good film, I don't know, but I'm not going to base my opinion on thinking that the artist is a bad person or a good person. Now, there is the moral quandary of do you support them, say, if they're a living artist, you know, would I go and watch a new Roman Polanski film in theaters? 
absolutely not. I'm not going to give money to him or, you know, anyone that, that supports him in that way. But am I going to watch his films? Yes, absolutely. And I feel the same way about Woody Allen. I actually love a lot of Woody Allen films. Uh, Woody Allen's work, especially, sort of, say, uh, a sort of Annie Hall or the like, uh, really in kind of the late 70s, early 80s, when he started to get into more serious work and the funny work wasn't necessarily as funny. I think this was sort of his prime. Woody Allen's one of those directors that just makes tons of films. I mean, he's like Kurosawa in that sense. You know, Kurosawa made over 40 films in his career, and Woody Allen's probably made more than that in his career. He's pretty much made a film every year for like the last 40 years, which is just obnoxious. I remember when um, A Rainy Day in New York was postponed. It was the first time in like 30 years that there was a year that Woody Allen didn't have a film coming out or something like that. And it's just absolutely insane, the the work ethic of someone like that. And so, you know, if, if nothing else, you have to give him credit for that. So coming in this film, I thought it was going to be a lesser Woody Allen film. Now, I think there's two kind of Woody Allen films. There's really him in his prime, you know, your Annie Halls or uh, Manhattan, is that what's called? Or the like. And then you kind of have his weaker stuff, which is earlier stuff or later stuff, which is, you know, enjoyable and funny, but perhaps just uh, visually isn't as interesting or just doesn't have as much of a story to be told. And so I didn't really have high expectations for a film. I was just looking for something lighthearted and something, honestly, I was looking something of the 30s and 40s, you know, uh, sort of the front page kind of thing, something that kind of just... Uh, you know, a talkie basically in the very traditional sense. But I was looking through, I basically just went to HBO and went to TCM because I, I wanted something old. I didn't know what I wanted. And I fumbled upon this film. I thought, look, I've heard a lot about this film. It's one of the few Woody Allen films. Well, I guess there's a lot I haven't seen, but I've seen probably 15, 20 Woody Allen films. But I hadn't seen this one and I'd heard a lot about it. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll try it out. I don't know if it's going to be any good, but at the very least, it's going to be a good laugh. So we open on the train scene, which is just a beautiful scene. And within those few minutes of just the train scene, I was in love with this film. I thought, this isn't just a good film, this is a great film. And that's the thing about great films, is from pretty much the beginning, you know it's a great film. There are exceptions, but I'd say for the most part, you know, from the first scene of The Lighthouse, or There Will Be Blood, or Citizen Kane, or, you know, uh, Modern Times, or whatever film you want to talk about, Clear from five to seven, from pretty much the first shot, you know that it's going to be a great film. There's just something about it that works and you can't put your finger on it, but it just works. And that's how I felt coming into this film. I thought this is going to be an incredible experience. And the first five minutes are entirely silent also. The lighting is beautiful. It's this wonderful cinematography of black and white, and basically it's just Woody Allen trapped on a boring train, and across from him is this very lively train, and it simultaneously has a ton to say, but also nothing to say at all, which I think is one of the most profound parts about Woody Allen, which is he can get really existential, but also being silly. It's sort of a combination between, say, an Antonioni and uh, a Charlie Chaplin or a Buster Keaton, or maybe even, a, more accurately, a Harold Lloyd. Uh, a combination of this sort of silly physical comedy combined with a sort of existentialism, which is how you feel at the beginning of the film, and it is just absolutely beautifully done. And then they get to the trash sequence, and that's when we sort of uh, cut to these people arguing, and you realize what the premise of the film is, which is 
Woody Allen is, in, is sort of autobiographical in this way, is playing a version of himself, sort of like a, an Ed Wood or something like it, where it's, you know, a director playing themselves, sort of all, obviously, uh, Giant Depp wasn't playing Ed Wood, but, you know, it's a director making a movie about directors. It's very meta, I suppose, in that way, especially because Woody Allen's sort of playing a version of himself. He said in interviews that he's not actually playing himself, he's just playing a version of himself. Also that this is his favorite film, which I think this is why. It's something very autobiographical, and it's something that this film, uh, from that moment, and really from the very beginning, they realize what it's dealing with. It's dealing with what does it mean to be successful, and why doesn't the success just makes me happy? Because I should be happy. You know, I see these successful people all around me, and yet I'm not happy, and why is that? And that's sort of what this film is about. And a lot of the film is Woody Allen's character, who isn't named Woody Allen, but basically a pseudonym for Woody Allen, saying, oh, your work is great, it's amazing, but we want to fix this. And especially, they say, we like the early funny stuff. That's what they keep telling him throughout the film. We like the early funny stuff, which is something Woody Allen has heard a lot by the year 1980, especially after he made Interiors, which was a pretty serious film, which isn't what Woody Allen up to that point was known for. And people were kind of angry. And I've seen Interiors, and I think it's an absolutely beautiful film and shows that Woody Allen, at least during the 80s, had a real eye for directing and just knowing where to put the camera and lighting and everything that goes with it. And so people you know, are complaining about his, his new film. They're saying, oh, this doesn't work or that doesn't work, but we want you to go to this festival for the weekend. He's like, why would I go to a festival about myself? That seems so pretentious. He's like, no, no, you need to go. It'll be a good time. So they end up convincing him to go. And, and uh, right before he goes, we meet one of the love interests of the film, which I think is one of the most interesting characters, it seems to be someone who is dealing with perhaps uh, what seems to be bipolar, uh, could just be uh, depression. It's not entirely clear what it is, but it is really intriguing and you kind of see the beginnings of what this relationship is. And this is something that's sort of interesting about the film and I suppose uh, fixes what I complain so much in A Wrath of Man, which is they're constantly giving you like this happened on this day, and that happened on that day, and then this happened on that day, where this film, they'll have different things happening at different times, and they won't tell you. They'll just happen, and you'll have to figure out from context, or later go, wait a minute, did this happen here or there? Because it doesn't really matter all that much if it's in exact chronological order, and I think that's kind of part of this film, is it not being chronological order. You learn more about this relationship as the film goes on, even though by the time the film takes place, the relationship is over and he's actually on to, well, two more relationships, which is something Woody Allen is sort of interested in this film, is the um, both male and female, the lustful nature of success and sort of wanting to be around successful people and wanting to inhabit other people's success without actually having to do anything. And that's where you see what you see a lot in the film is just people trying to, you know, be friends with him or sleep with him or, you know, do this different uh, silly gags to be, you know, for so he can tell people that he's, you know, they're, they're Woody Allen's friend or they slept with him or, you know, there's that uh, hilarious scene where there's a woman laying in bed and he's, you know, he says, you know, don't you, you know, you shouldn't be here, blah, 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 blah. And she says, oh, well, my husband drove me all the way here. And he says, husband, where's your husband? Is he hiding in the closet? And he's going around looking through the closets and he's like, no, he's waiting in the van downstairs. He goes, well, what, what will your husband think about all this? And she says, oh, well, well, he would be honored. He's a huge fan of yours, especially your early funny work, which is, again, something they keep going back to. 
and it shows that there's just this incredible lust and that Woody Allen's is very uncomfortable with and it's honestly it's one of the early interpretations of fame of course by this point fame has been a thing since well the 20s or 30s I mean as early as your Charlie Chaplin's your Katherine Hepburn's and the like Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire but fame by the 80s is a very different thing fame in the 20s was this idea right they almost never met but by the 80s with television and film and all these different things and all these different ways to communicate fame became a very different i think fame in the 80s is very similar to how fame is today which is it went through a sort of period of of change i mean you know you're famous today and this is one of the reasons that i never use children in my films or ever put my sisters in the vlog is because fame today is ubiquitous. I mean, it's absolutely everywhere. Anyone in the world can be watching this YouTube video or Instagram video, whatever this is, or listening to this as a podcast. And that's sort of what started to happen. I mean, 80s is kind of really where that started. And so Woody Allen is trying to come to terms with that fame. And in this film, I think some people might see it as pretentious, but I don't think it's really about him saying, oh, look at me, I'm so great. It's really more him concerned with people are telling me that I'm great, that I am so successful, and yet I don't feel happy. I'm not happy. I'm struggling with existentialism, which, of course, is one of the, the best jokes in the film. Someone asks him, you know, I heard you majored in philosophy in college. And he's like, no, that's not true. I took one existential philosophy class in college, and on the final, I had no idea what to put for any of the answers, so I left all 10 questions blank. And, of course, they gave me 100%. Which is kind of the whole point of the film. It's a sort of existential thought experiment in a certain sense. And just trying to figure out how to find meaning or purpose. And he even asks towards the end of the film, you know, and he's asking this to these aliens, why am I making films? Why do I make films? I just don't really know, you know, what's the point if we're all just going to die if this all doesn't mean anything, you know, as an atheist, which Woody Allen was at the time. What's the point of any of this? And so Woody Allen is there and he is lusted after again and again by both men and women, both uh, platonically and sexually. And we learn more and more about the relationship between, and it's paralleling this relationship he is having uh, with this violinist at the festival and this relationship he was having with lover who was suffering with bipolar. And it kind of cuts back and forth and you never really know you know, when you are in time, and it doesn't really matter. You just know that these two experiences are kind of paralleling each other, even though they're not really similar people. And it's just, it's a really enjoyable experience, and you see them often on set. And of course, the one he falls in love with, she is an actor, and he kind of, you know, pushes her out, oh, you'd be bigger as actor, which of course is sort of a Citizen Kane esque, although perhaps not as serious as Citizen Kane, where you know, he says, oh, you're going to be the best, and she kind of keeps pushing her, pushing her, pushing her, and she just, at the end, doesn't really want to do it. And unlike the Charles Foster Kane, he doesn't really have the self-control to stop her. And towards the end of the film, which I realize that I'm kind of skipping over the entire plot of the film, because there really isn't a plot in the film, Woody Allen claimed that this film was originally supposed to be called Woody Allen Number 4, because he's not even half as good as Fellini when Fellini did 8.5, which is kind of similar to uh, Fellini, especially that opening scene where it's some a director is trapped, but instead of a car, they're trapped on a train, 
and he just walks around and it's just a festival taking place over the weekend just like an eight and a half you know it's basically a day uh almost ulysses-esque and i think that there could be a lot of comparisons to be made between those two films this is similar so i'm not really going to focus on the plot because there really isn't any it's just a bunch of gags intertwined with moments of existentialism and his paralleling relationships between uh, his old girlfriend and his new girlfriend. And there's this beautiful scene towards the end, which I think is actually a replica of a scene in Persona or one of another Igmar Bergman's films where uh, the woman is talking and it'll just be like this, and they'll cut, and then they'll cut, and then they'll cut. And it, it's their jump cuts, and it's it's an amazing way to experience, and I think one of the most honest experience of uh, bipolar that I have seen on screen. I, I, I was moved by that moment, especially because this film does a very challenging thing, which it balances the silliness of the film with these very serious ideas, and it can be very easy to perhaps ridicule the serious or to make the serious or to make the funny unfunny by making it too serious. It, it's a very hard balance and I think Woody Allen has mastered that here and which in other films I don't think he did master. Even in Annie Hall I don't think he really mastered it. And as we get go through the film you get more and more about these different characters and his budding relationship with her and just like a series of silly incidents and then we get to the UFO scene, which I, I, I'm really only going to talk about this scene. I realize that I'm jumping over a lot of the scenes in the film. Maybe it's because it's been over a day since I watched it and I f forgot stuff because that's just too long to go without, uh, before talking about the movie or maybe it's because I don't think the plot's really that important and a lot of the mill stuff is beautiful and funny and sort of reflects, uh, you know, the difference between reality and how he is in films, which is kind of a surreal thing to be. It, I mean, they're showing films in a movie, so it's, they're movies within movies, sort of Inception-esque. There's definitely some meta stuff going on there. And Woody Allen, you know, acting as an actor, but then also acting as the director, but then also directing the film. And it's sort of complicated in that way. And so jump forward to towards the end of the film and the high air balloon scene, which I thought was going to be the last scene of the film. Basically, uh, Woody Allen and the violinist's car broke down, and so they're walking to tr back to the hotel, Stardust, and they come across this group of people who are waiting for UFOs. And they kind of do this thing, which they do all the time, which is they ask Woody Allen's character, whatever the, his name is in the film, you know, oh, do you believe in this? Do you believe in that? Is this why you're doing this? There's actually this incredible scene early in the film when he first gets to the hotel where it's just like 10 minutes of people asking him questions and him just trying to have like, like just trying to move through the hotel and just constantly being asked questions and signing things. And it feels very realistic in a way that I, I guess I don't know if it is, but it feels how fame would sort of work, which is... Fame has this fascinating way. I don't think it's very often like right, just giant crowds of people crowding around you and no one can hear anything. Uh, humans have this way to sort of rotate around fame in, in a certain sense that like, well, one person will dive in and another person will dive in, but it's never, I don't think it's as chaotic as people make it out to be. And in this, although it is chaotic, everything kind of seems to have its own little thing. And it's a bunch of just little gags that Woody Allen's uh, 
giving himself the opportunity to do, which maybe is a little self-indulgent, but pretty entertaining. And so the similar thing is happening when he is at this UFO place, and they're just waiting around, and then we meet the UFOs, which is, is a fun interpretation of UFOs, because it's basically just people in, like, helmets and, 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 like, football kind of uniforms. I don't even know how to... It actually reminded me a lot of, again, going back to Wrath of Man, those costumes costumes the kind of body armor they have it's sort of it's actually very similar to that and he's asking these very existential questions which is something he's kind of going around the whole film but this is the only point in the film where he actually asks those questions you know he says you know what's the point of making films if we're all just going to die what's the point of doing anything what's the point of being funny i don't you know what's the point of being in love we're just you know there's nothing there's just nothingness and i don't really understand the point and they don't really answer those questions, which is also kind of the point. The thing about existentialism is there is no answer. That's what makes existentialism so scary. There is no answer to God or life or the meaning of any of it. It's kind of nonsensical. And I think by by this point, Woody Allen just sort of has to accept it as he sees the hot air balloons fly away as the aliens leave, having given him absolutely no answers and you hear this, um, one of my favorite songs, uh, Moonlight Serenade, I believe. Oh, it's just absolutely beautiful song. And, I, and to me, I think I thought this was the end of the film. I thought it was a really great way to end the film because he's asked these beings who are right a hundred times as smart as humans. And it's not that they know the answers or don't know the answers, but they refuse to answer question. And he just has to sort of live with that and be okay with that. And that ending felt very eight and a half, where it's just sort of surreal and weird, and it just doesn't make any sense. And you just have to accept that, because life doesn't really make any sense. And at this point, this film didn't really make a whole lot of sense. But the film actually continues for a couple of more scenes. And in the final scene, which is interesting, is it takes place in the auditorium. And this sort of uh, Mel Brooks style of another movie within the movie is the audience having just watched the film Stardust Memories, the film that we as a viewer are watching now, which is just, again, so hard to wrap your head around because this is a director making films. So there's his films he's making, and then there's the film we're watching. But that film we're watching is actually a film an audience is watching, and we're actually watching the film. We're watching the audience watch the movie about the different movie. Again, very Inception-like, where there's just all of these different layers that just go on and on and on and on. And they're talking about, well, what do you think, you know, the meaning of this was? Or what do you think the meaning of that was? Kind of making fun of the viewer to a certain extent, but I don't think, and, you know, a lot of reviews have talked about this for people who don't like the film. They said, oh, well, not only is it pretentious, but he hates the viewer. He doesn't think that the viewer is worthy of any sort of value like he, he's just making him for, for himself and he doesn't care what the viewer thinks I don't think that's really what he's poking fun at I don't think he's making fun of people going to movies or watching movies or enjoying movies he's not making fun of the viewer he's making fun of people who need to find meaning in things you know, he, he says at one point in the film you know, well what's the meaning of the Rolls Royce right the meaning there is no meaning to Rolls Royce there's no meaning to any of this it's silly it's pointless that's kind of the premise of existentialism is there is no answers and I think at the end of the film after the whole audience leaves Woody Allen comes in which means that he also directed that film which is even more confusing and he grabs his hat and leaves and that's how the film ends 
which I think what it's trying to answer is that existentialism is based on the idea that we do not know the answers. If we were to live with that, we have to accept that there just won't be answers, and we have to be okay with that. And I'm not saying that's, that's an easy thing to accept, or you know, a thing that should be easily accepted, but that's what this film is suggesting, is, you know, it, it is just a movie. Which is often, you know, the last thing a director wants to hear, well, it's just a movie. But Woody Allen here is saying, it kind of is just a movie. And that's okay. And so for me, you know, now when I, when I give film ratings, I always think of what Andrew uh, would give the film rating. And I know he'd give this film probably a 6 or 7. He'd probably think it's a little pretentious. He wouldn't think it's as good as I do. But I'm being completely honest. I'm going to give this film a 10 out of 10. Now, I don't do that a lot. There's probably less than 20 films I've given a 10 out of 10 of the 1,500 films I've rated on IMDb and Letterboxd. But there is not a single second of this film they did not enjoy. It was not only enjoyable, but it really made me think. It was absolutely beautiful. I mean, the black and white cinematography was absolutely gorgeous. So many nods to the DP and the cinematographer here and well, that's the same person, uh, the gaffer, and all the people who worked on the set, because it is just an absolutely beautiful film, and every single second just looks beautiful. And maybe part of it has to do, and this is the reason why I liked Mank a lot too, is because I love movies about movies. It's what I care most about. So the only thing I really understand, most of the world I don't understand. I don't understand physics or business or marketing or most of the things most people do all I really understand is movies and so movies about movies make me really happy they make me smile they are the thing that make me the happiest and I just I loved every second of this film and I'm, I'm just I'm really glad I had the opportunity to watch it especially because I just fumbled upon it and I didn't think that anything would come of it but the fact that not only did I fumble upon this film not only did I enjoy it but I loved it, and I think it will go down as my favorite Woody Allen film. Really says a lot about this film. It's just so good. <laughs> I, it's it's funny when when I'm talking about a, a Death Wish or a Ready Player One or any of those films that I hate. I can talk about them for three hours, but with the film that I like, I, I struggle to talk about it for even a minute or even to give a plot of this because I was so in love with the film that I just I was lost in it and I think that's what the best films do and I think that's why I gave this film a 10 out of 10 is for an hour and a half I was lost and if a film can do that a film can do anything so here's to getting lost. Mm -hmm.